0: He loaded his soldiers into boats, sailed to the enemy's country, and unloaded the soldiers and equipment. Then he gave the order to burn the ships that had carried them. Addressing his men before the first battle, he said, You see the boats going up in smoke. That means we cannot leave these shores alive unless we win. We now have no choice. We win or we perish. They won. Every person who wins in any undertaking must be willing to burn his ships and cut all sources of retreat. That is the only way you can be sure of maintaining the state of mind known as a burning desire to win. It is essential to success. The morning after the Great Chicago Fire, a group of merchants stood on State Street, looking at the smoking remains of what had been their stores. They went into a conference to decide if they would try to rebuild or if they would leave Chicago and start over in a more promising section of the country. They decided to leave, all except one. The merchant who decided to stay and rebuild pointed a finger at the remains of his store and said, Gentlemen, on that very spot, I will build the world's greatest store, no matter how many times it may burn down. That was in 1871. The store was built. It still stands there today. The Marshall Field's department store is a towering monument to the power of that state of mind known as a burning desire. The easy thing would have been for Marshall Field to do exactly what his fellow merchants did. When the going was hard and the future looked dismal, they pulled up and went where the going seemed easier. Mark well this difference between Marshall Field and the other merchants. It is that difference which distinguishes those who succeed from those who fail. Every human being old enough to understand the value of money wishes for it, but wishing will not bring riches. Desiring riches, with a state of mind that becomes an obsession, then planning definite ways and means to acquire riches, and backing those plans with persistence, a persistence which does not recognize failure. That's what will bring riches. Editor's Comments In other of his writings, Napoleon Hill uses the term definiteness of purpose as being interchangeable with desire. The following explanation is adapted from the Napoleon Hill Foundation's book, Believe and Achieve. Desire, or definiteness of purpose, is more than goal setting. In simplest terms, your desire is your roadmap to achieving an overall career objective. Your goals represent specific steps along the way. Having a desire or definiteness of purpose for your life has a synergistic effect on your ability to achieve your goals. As you become better at what you do, you devote all of your resources toward reaching your objective, you become more alert to opportunities, and you reach decisions more quickly. Every action you take ultimately boils down to the question Will this goal help me reach my desire, my overall objective? Or won't it? Your purpose will become your life. It will permeate your mind, both conscious and subconscious. This is the end of the editor's comments. Six Ways to Turn Desire into Gold The method by which your desire for riches can be transmuted into its financial equivalent consists of six definite practical steps. 1. Fix in your mind the exact amount of money you desire. It is not sufficient merely to say, I want plenty of money. Be definite about the amount. There is a psychological reason for such definiteness explained in subsequent chapters. 2. Determine exactly what you intend to give in return for the money you desire. There is no such reality as something for nothing. 3. Establish a definite date when you intend to possess the money you desire. 4. Create a definite plan for carrying out your desire and begin at once, whether you are ready or not, to put this plan into action. 5. Now write it out. Write a clear, concise statement of the amount of money you intend to acquire. Name the time limit for its acquisition. State what you intend to give in return for the money, and describe clearly the plan through which you intend to accumulate it. 6. Read your written statement aloud, twice daily. Read it once just before retiring at night, and read it once after arising in the morning. As you read, see and feel and believe yourself already in possession of the money. It is important that you follow the instructions in these six steps it is especially important that you observe and follow the instructions in the sixth step. You may complain that it is impossible for you to see yourself in possession of money before you actually have it. Here is where a burning desire will come to your aid. If you truly desire money so keenly that your desire is an obsession, you will have no difficulty in convincing yourself that you will acquire it. The object is to want money and to become so determined to have it, that you convince yourself you will have it. If you have not been schooled in the workings of the human mind, these instructions may appear impractical. It may help you to know that the information they convey was given to me by Andrew Carnegie, who made himself into one of the most successful men in American history. Carnegie began as an ordinary laborer in the steel mills, but managed, despite his humble beginning, To make these principles yield him a fortune of considerably more than $100 million. Editor's Comment In today's terms, the value of Carnegie's fortune would be at least $20 billion and probably a good deal more. End of Editor's Comment It may be of further help to know that the six steps were carefully scrutinized by the famed inventor and successful businessman, Thomas A. Edison. He gave his stamp of approval saying they are not only the steps essential for the accumulation of money, but also for the attainment of any goal. Editor's Comments In the time since Napoleon Hill wrote these words, advances in our understanding of both the physiology of the brain and the psychology of the mind have yielded a much greater understanding of human motivation. Even so, the methods used by modern motivational experts are essentially the same techniques advised by Hill. Research studies confirm that there is sound psychological basis for doing as Hill advises. Be very specific when setting goals, perform the physical act of committing those goals to paper, and repeat your stated goal aloud to yourself often. These techniques have gained wide acceptance among modern experts in the field. The psychological principle at work is similar to that which underlies auto-suggestion and self-hypnosis. Concepts that will be discussed in greater depth in Chapter 5, Autosuggestion, and in Chapter 13, The Subconscious Mind. Hill's instruction to see yourself as you will be when you have already achieved your objective is also a specific technique. Today it is commonly taught by motivational experts under the term creative visualization. In Chapter 4 on Faith, and in Chapter 5 on Autosuggestion, Hill elaborates on his method. Before moving on, the editors would like to reinforce Hill's advice to follow his instructions to the letter. The editors know there is a tendency for the reader to assume that it is enough for them just to intellectually understand a concept. As you read Hill's six points, you probably found yourself thinking, Sure, some people might need to write things down, but I'm not a kid, I get the idea. Or, Okay, I understand that saying it out loud might help some less sophisticated people, but I already understand the point intellectually. If you feel that way, let us remind you that many of the most successful people whom you admire did not think they were too smart or too sophisticated to follow Hill's instructions. The editors would again point out that if Napoleon Hill believed the actual acts of writing and speaking your goals is important, and if psychologists and motivational experts agree— then you would be foolish not to follow this simple advice. Just do it. This is the end of the editor's comments. The steps call for no hard labor. They call for no sacrifice. To apply them does not call for a great amount of education. But the six steps do call for enough imagination to see and to understand that the accumulation of money cannot be left to chance or luck. You may as well know right here that you can never have riches in great quantity unless you can work yourself into a white heat of desire for money and actually believe you will possess it. The Power of Great Dreams If you are in this race for riches, you should be encouraged by the following truth. The world in which we live is demanding new ideas, new ways of doing things, new leaders, new inventions, and new methods, styles, versions, and variations of everything all the time. Behind all this demand for new and better things, there is one quality that you must possess to win, and that is definiteness of purpose the knowledge of what you want, and a burning desire to possess it. If you truly desire riches, remember that the real leaders of the world have always been people who harnessed and put into practical use the intangible, unseen forces of opportunity. Leaders are the people who convert those opportunities into cities, skyscrapers, factories, transportation, entertainment, and every form of convenience that makes things easier, faster, better, or just make life more pleasant. In planning to acquire your share of the riches, don't let anyone put you down for being a dreamer. To win the big stakes in this changing world, you must catch the spirit of the great pioneers, whose dreams have given to civilization all that it has of value. It is that spirit which serves as the lifeblood of our own country your opportunity, and mine, to develop and market our talents. A burning desire to be and to do is the starting point from which the dreamer must take off. Dreams are not born of indifference, laziness, or lack of ambition. If the thing you wish to do is right and you believe in it, go ahead and do it. Never mind what they say if you meet with temporary defeat. They do not know that every failure brings with it the seed of an equivalent success. Marconi dreamed of a system for sending sound from one place to another without the use of wires. It may interest you to know that Marconi's friends had him taken into custody and examined in a psychiatric hospital when he announced he had discovered a principle by which he could send messages through the air. Evidence that he did not dream in vain may be found in every radio and television set, cellular phone, communication satellite, and every other wireless device in the world. Fortunately, the dreamers of today fare better. Today, your world is filled with an abundance of opportunity that the dreamers of the past never knew. If you doubt this is true, if you are feeling crushed because of a recent failure, you are about to learn how your failure can be your most valuable asset. Almost everyone who succeeds in life gets off to a bad start and passes through many heartbreaking struggles before they arrive. The turning point in the lives of those who succeed usually comes at the moment of some crisis through which they are introduced to their other selves. Editor's Comments Napoleon Hill's concept of the other self is mentioned elsewhere in Think and Grow Rich, but he does not comment on it extensively. The following elaboration is taken from his later writings. You've been thinking about your losses to the exclusion of everything else. The more you concentrate on them, the more you attract other losses. Stop thinking about them, and make up your mind that you are going to benefit from your experience. Whatever personal obstacles you face, you must start getting to know that side of your personality that knows no obstacles, that recognizes no defeats. Cultivate a friendship with the other you, so no matter what you're doing, you are allied with someone who shares your goals. All the philosophy and advice about persuading others will be much more useful to you if you practice it yourself. This is the end of the editor's comment. Sidney Porter discovered the genius that slept within his brain only after he had met with great misfortune. He was found guilty of embezzlement and confined to a prison cell in Columbus, Ohio, and it was there that he became acquainted with his other self. He began to write short stories. Then, while locked in his cell, he began to sell those stories to magazines under the pen name O. Henry. Through the use of his imagination, he discovered himself to be a great author instead of a miserable criminal and outcast. By the time he was released from prison, O. Henry was the most popular short story writer in the country. Editor's Comments More recently, in another prison, another kind of writer met his other self, and country music gained one of its most talented songwriters and biggest stars. As a kid, Merle Haggard's family home was a converted boxcar in Bakersfield, California. After his father died when Merle was nine, more often than not, home for young Merle was a series of juvenile detention centers. At sixteen, he quit school, and for the next four years, the only mark Merle Haggard made in the world was a rap sheet for stolen cars, burglaries, and bogus checks. By the age of twenty, he was serving time in San Quentin, and gaining a reputation as a hard-case con. Then he met his other self. Inspired by a concert Johnny Cash played for the inmates, plus conversations with men on death row, and the time he spent in solitary confinement, Haggard learned that he had another self, and that self had something to say through his music. When he got out of solitary, Haggard asked for the hardest job the prison had to offer. He enrolled in night school courses at the prison, straightened himself out, and won his parole after two and a half years. He went back to Bakersfield and dug ditches during the day so he could polish his songwriting and performing at night. Within three years, he had a recording contract. Within five years, he had his first top ten hit, and has since gone on to become one of the most influential voices in modern country music. This is the end of the Editor's Comments. Thomas Edison dreamed of a lamp that could be operated by electricity, and he began where he stood to put his dream into action. He failed more than ten thousand times. Despite his failures, he stood by that dream until finally he was driven to the discovery of the genius that slept within his brain. Editor's Comments Dean Kamen got to know his other self very early in life. While he was a teenager, came and started his own company, building and selling control systems for automated sound and light shows. He was still in high school when he got the contract to automate the Times Square New Year's Eve ball. Though he went on to attend university, he never bothered to graduate because he was too busy working on something he called auto syringe, the first wearable infusion pump for administering drug therapies. His invention was hailed as a medical landmark, as were many of his other breakthroughs, which include a revolutionary kidney dialysis machine, an insulin pump for diabetics, an improved stent used for heart patients, and more than 150 other devices he has patented. One day, seeing the difficulty a man in a wheelchair was having getting up a curb, Kamen set his mind to creating a device that would liberate people confined to wheelchairs. The result is the iBot, A revolutionary wheel device that uses computers and a system of stabilizing gyroscopes that imitate the working of the human body. It not only goes over curbs, but it will even go up and down stairs, travel over almost any kind of rough ground, and will allow the user to raise themselves eye to eye with a standing person. And it does it all without the user having to get out of the device or needing anyone's assistance. In 2001, Kamen hit the front pages when he introduced the Segway, a one-person people mover based on his iBot technology. It's a two-wheel scooter-like device that zips and zooms forward, backward, left, right, and comes to a stop without the rider doing anything more than barely shifting his or her body. It is so sensitive that it is almost as though it obeys the user's thoughts. The Segway may be a world-changing invention, with possible applications for work and travel that stagger the imagination. As this is being written, the Segway is already being used to navigate large warehouses and is being tested by police departments and postal employees. While traffic cops in City Hall wrangle over whether the Segway belongs on the sidewalk or the road, Dean Kamen is dreaming a new dream. This time, the dream is an invention that may literally bring light to some of the darkest corners of the earth. Cayman has developed a non-polluting electric generator that can use almost anything as fuel. But here's the extraordinary part. He has created a revolutionary closed system so that the engine's heat is used to purify ten gallons of drinkable water every hour. This amazing invention could bring safe drinking water to parts of the world where contaminated water kills millions, and at the same time, it will provide a source of cheap, reliable electric power. Dean Kamen is not some academic hidden in a lab somewhere. Kamen is an inventor. But like Thomas Edison, he is also an entrepreneur and businessman, creating and marketing devices that are changing the public perception of what an inventor is. This is the end of the editor's comments. Henry Ford, poor and uneducated, dreamed of a horseless carriage. He went to work with what tools he possessed without waiting for opportunity to favor him, and now evidence of his dream belts the entire earth. He put more wheels into operation than any man who ever lived, because he was not afraid to back his dreams. Editor's Comments Stephen Jobs and Steve Wozniak, two university dropouts, dreamed of making and selling computers that the average person could use. Like Ford, working with the tools they possessed, they built the first Apple computer in the Jobs family garage. And like Ford, they weren't afraid to back their dreams. After showing their prototype to a local retailer, they got an order for 25 machines. Jobs sold his Volkswagen, and Woz sold his expensive Hewlett-Packard scientific calculator to raise $1,300 to start their new company. They took the money, convinced the local electronic suppliers to grant them a line of credit, and started production of the Apple I. They revolutionized the computer hardware and software industry. Released in 1976 and priced at $666, the Apple One earned them $774,000. Two years later, they introduced the Apple II, which in the next three years earned $140 million. In 1980, Apple went public, and after the first day of trading, the company had a market value of $1.2 billion. Wozniak left the company in 1981, but Jobs pushed through the development of the Macintosh in 1984. In 1985, Jobs left too, but in 1998 he came back to Apple to revitalize the floundering company with the creation of the iMac computers, the animation company Pixar, the iPod, and iTunes. In presenting stories of contemporary successes, the editors have followed Hill's style of using real people to illustrate the principles of success, but Napoleon Hill was granted a rare privilege. Unlike anyone, before or after, he had the opportunity to personally meet the most powerful and successful people and learn firsthand the dreams that inspired them, the obstacles that confronted them, and how they found the courage within themselves to overcome their failures. Hill met many of the inventors and the empire builders who laid the foundations of 20th century American industry while they were still news, not history. Then, for more than 25 years, he studied the habits and learned the secrets of the next generations who built on the foundations, forged new industries, devised new systems, and dreamed new dreams. It was only because Hill was given such unprecedented access over such a long period that he was able to compare, contrast, analyze, and then formulate a philosophy of achievement based on the real stories of real people who who had used these techniques to create their success. Think and Grow Rich revolutionized self-help writing, and to this day is the standard against which all motivational literature is measured. Its success also helped create the market for the thousands of business biographies that tell in detail how the dreams were born, plans were made, frustrations were faced, and triumphs achieved in every sector of modern business. And because this wealth of information is now available with little more than the click of a mouse, you can read, hear, or watch today's greatest entrepreneurs and most successful CEOs confirming in their own words the basic truth behind every one of the principles Napoleon Hill explains in this book. The products or services they sell may be different, but the story of their success is the same. Dreams, followed by failures, followed by lessons learned, then success. For every Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, or O. Henry that Napoleon Hill cites to make a point, today there is a Steve Jobs, Dean Kamen, or Merle Haggard proving that Hill's points are still valid. This is the end of the editor's comments. There is a difference between wishing for a thing and being ready to receive it. No one is ready for a thing until they believe they can acquire it. The state of mind must be belief, not mere hope or wish. Open-mindedness is essential for belief. Closed minds do not inspire faith, courage, and belief. Remember, no more effort is required to aim high in life, to demand abundance and prosperity, than is required to accept misery and poverty. A great poet has correctly stated this universal truth through these lines. I bargained with life for a penny, and life would pay no more. However, I begged at evening when I counted my scanty store. For life is a just employer. He gives you what you ask. But once you have set the wages, why, you must bear the task. I worked for a menial's hire, only to learn dismayed, that any wage I had asked of life, life would have willingly paid. Desire Outwits Mother Nature As a fitting climax to this chapter, I wish to introduce one of the most unusual persons I have ever known. I first saw him a few minutes after he was born. He came into the world without any physical sign of ears. When pressed for an opinion, the doctor concluded that the child might be deaf and mute for life. I challenged that doctor's opinion. I had the right to do so. I was the child's father. I, too, reached a decision. But I expressed my opinion silently in the secrecy of my own heart. In my own mind, I knew that my son would hear and speak. How? I was sure there must be a way, and I knew I would find it. I thought of the words of the immortal Emerson. The whole course of things goes to teach us faith. We need only obey. There is guidance for each of us, and by lowly listening, we shall hear the right word. The right word? Desire. More than anything else, I desired that my son should not be deaf and unable to speak. From that desire, I never receded, not for a second what could I do about it? Somehow, I would find a way to transplant into that child's mind my own burning desire for ways and means of conveying sound to his brain without the aid of ears. As soon as the child was old enough to cooperate, I would fill his mind so completely with a burning desire to hear that nature would, by methods of her own, translate it into physical reality. All this thinking took place in my own mind, but I spoke of it to no one. Every day I renewed the pledge I had made to myself that my son should not be deaf. As he grew older and began to take notice of things around him, we observed that he had a slight degree of hearing. When he reached the age when children usually begin talking, he made no attempt to speak, but we could tell by his actions that he could hear certain sounds slightly. That was all I needed to know. I was convinced that if he could hear, even slightly, he might develop still greater hearing capacity. Then something happened that gave me hope. It came from an entirely unexpected source. We bought a phonograph. When the child heard the music for the first time, he went into ecstasies. He promptly appropriated the machine. On one occasion, he played a record over and over for almost two hours, standing in front of the phonograph with his teeth clamped on the edge of the case. The significance of this did not become clear to us until years afterward. At the time, we had never heard of the principle of bone conduction of sound. Shortly after he appropriated the phonograph, I discovered that he could hear me quite clearly when I spoke with my lips touching his mastoid bone at the base of the skull. Having determined that he could hear the sound of my voice plainly, I began immediately to transfer to his mind the desire to hear and speak. When I discovered that my son enjoyed bedtime stories, I went to work creating stories designed to develop in him self-reliance, imagination, and a strong desire to hear. There was one storyline in particular that I emphasized over and over. Every time I told it, I gave it some new and dramatic coloring. These stories were designed to plant in his mind the thought that his affliction was not a liability, but an asset of great value. As a result of my studies and personal experience, I firmly believe that every adversity brings with it the seed of an equivalent advantage. However, despite my beliefs, I must confess that I did not have the slightest idea how this disability could ever become an asset he won a new world with six cents. As I analyze the experience in retrospect, I can see now that my son's faith in me had much to do with the astounding results. He did not question anything I told him. I sold him on the idea that he had a distinct advantage over his older brother and that this advantage would reflect itself in many ways. For example, The teachers in school would observe that he had no ears, and because of this they would show him special attention and treat him with extraordinary kindness. And they always did. I also sold him on the idea that when he became old enough to sell newspapers his older brother had already become a newspaper merchant, he would have a big advantage over his brother. My reasoning was that people would pay him extra money for his wares because they could see that he was a bright, industrious boy, despite the fact that he had no ears. When he was about seven, he showed the first evidence that my method of stimulating his mind was bearing fruit. For several months he begged for the privilege of selling newspapers, but his mother would not give the project her consent. Finally, he took matters in his own hands. One afternoon, when he was left at home with the staff, he climbed through the kitchen window, shinned to the ground, and set out on his own he borrowed six cents in capital from the neighborhood shoemaker and invested it in papers, which he sold out. He took his earnings, reinvested in more newspapers, and kept repeating until late in the evening. After balancing his accounts and paying back the six cents he had borrowed from his banker, he had a net profit of forty-two cents. When we got home that night, we found him in bed asleep with the money tightly clenched in his hand. His mother opened his hand, removed the coins, and cried. Of all things, to me it seemed she was crying over her son's first victory. My reaction was the reverse. I laughed, for I knew that my endeavor to plant in my son's mind an attitude of faith in himself had been successful. His mother saw, in his first business venture, a little deaf boy who had gone out in the streets and risked his life to earn money. I saw a brave, ambitious, self-reliant little businessman whose stock in himself had been increased a hundred percent. He had gone into business on his own initiative and had won. I was not only pleased, I was impressed. He had clearly demonstrated the first signs of a resourcefulness that would go with him all through life. The little deaf boy went through grade school, high school, and college without being able to hear his teachers except when they shouted loudly at close range. He did not go to a school for the deaf, and we did not use sign language. We were determined that he should live like any other boy who could hear and speak. We stood by that decision, although it cost us many heated debates with school officials. While he was in high school, he tried an electronic hearing aid, but it was of no value to him. During his last week in college, something happened that marked the most important turning point of his life. Through what seemed to be mere chance, he came into possession of another electronic hearing device, which was sent to him on trial. He was slow about testing it, due to his disappointment with a similar device. Finally, he picked it up carelessly, placed it on his head, and hooked up the battery. Suddenly, as if by magic, his lifelong desire for normal hearing became a reality. For the first time in his life, he heard practically as well as any person with normal hearing. Overjoyed because of the changed world that had been brought to him, he rushed to the telephone, called his mother, and heard her voice perfectly. The next day, for the first time in his life, he plainly heard the voices of his professors in class. For the first time in his life, he could converse freely with other people without them having to speak loudly. Truly, he had come into possession of a changed world. His desire was finally paying dividends. But the victory was not yet complete. He still had to find a definite and practical way to convert his disability into an equivalent asset. Thought That Works Miracles Intoxicated with the joy of his newly discovered world of sound, He wrote a letter to the manufacturer of the hearing aid, enthusiastically describing his experience. Something in his letter prompted the company to invite him to New York. He was escorted through the factory, and while talking with the chief engineer, telling him about his changed world, a hunch, an idea, or an inspiration, call it what you wish, flashed into his mind. It was this impulse of thought that converted his disability into an asset an asset destined to pay dividends in both money and happiness to thousands for all time to come. The sum and substance of that impulse was this. It occurred to him that he might be of help to the millions of people who go through life without the benefit of hearing devices if he could find a way to tell them the story of his changed world. For an entire month, he carried out intensive research, during which he analyzed the entire marketing system of the manufacturer of the hearing device. Then he created a plan for reaching out to other hearing-impaired people all over the world to share with them his newly discovered changed world. When this was done, he put in writing a two-year plan based upon his findings. When he presented the plan to the company, he was instantly given a position for the purpose of carrying out his ambition. Little did he dream when he went to work that he was destined to bring hope and practical relief to thousands of people who, without his help, would have been limited forever by deafness. There's no doubt in my mind that Blair would have been deaf and unable to speak all his life if his mother and I had not managed to shape his mind as we did. When I planted in his mind the desire to hear and talk and live as other people, there went with that impulse some strange influence that caused nature to become bridge builder and span the gulf of silence between his brain and the outer world. Truly, a burning desire has devious ways of transmuting itself into its physical equivalent. Blair desired normal hearing. Now he has it. He was born with a condition that in those days might easily have sent a person with a less defined desire to the street with a bundle of pencils and a tin cup. The little white lie I planted in his mind when he was a child, by leading him to believe his impaired hearing would become a great asset, has justified itself. I am convinced it is a fact that there is nothing, right or wrong, that belief plus burning desire cannot make real. These qualities are free to everyone. Editor's Comments As Napoleon Hill was finishing this chapter on desire, it was reported that the famed opera singer Madame Schumann-Heinck had died. A passage in her obituary struck Hill as being so appropriate to the subject of this chapter that he was moved to comment as follows. End of Editor's Comment One short paragraph in the newspaper story about the famed opera singer Madame Schumann-Heinck gives the clue to this unusual woman's stupendous success. I quote the paragraph, because the clue it contains is none other than desire. Early in her career, Madame Schumann-Heinck visited the director of the Vienna Court Opera to have him test her voice. But he did not test it. After taking one look at the awkward and poorly dressed girl, he exclaimed, none too gently, With such a face, and with no personality at all, how can you ever expect to succeed in opera? My good child, give up the idea. Buy a sewing machine and go to work. You can never be a singer. Never is a long time. The director of the Vienna Court Opera may have known much about the technique of singing, but he knew little about the power of desire when it assumes the proportion of an obsession. If he had known more of that power, he would not have made the mistake of condemning genius without giving it an opportunity. Editor's Comments Although few readers of this edition will be familiar with Madame Schumann-Heinck, every reader knows a half-dozen similar stories. It is true for every generation and every kind of music. At some time, even the biggest stars were failures. At some time, someone told them they weren't good enough. But every one of those times that they failed, their desire was bigger than their failure. That is why you know their stories. And it's also why you've never heard about the thousands of other performers who were also told they weren't good enough. The ones you've never heard of are the ones whose desire wasn't big enough. They are the ones who believed that failure was defeat. This is the end of the editor's comment. Several years ago, one of my business associates became ill. He became worse as time went on, and finally was taken to the hospital for an operation. The doctor warned me that there was little, if any, chance of my ever seeing him alive again. But that was the doctor's opinion. It was not the opinion of the patient. Just before he was wheeled away, he whispered to me, Do not be disturbed, chief. I will be out of here in a few days. The attending nurse looked at me with pity. But the patient did come through safely. After it was all over, his physician said, Nothing but his own desire to live saved him. He never would have pulled through if he had not refused to accept the possibility of death. Editor's Comments By the 1980s, the phenomenon that Napoleon Hill wrote about in the preceding paragraph was embraced by a growing segment of the population. Among the adherents were numerous medical professionals who incorporated the concept under the term the body-mind connection and by the turn of the 21st century the belief that the mind can manifest physical changes in the body had become a part of mainstream medical practice. In Chapter 5, Autosuggestion, you will find further comment on the medical aspects of having a burning desire. This is the end of the editor's comment. I believe in the power of desire backed by faith in yourself, because I have seen this power lift people from lowly beginnings to places of power and wealth. I have seen it rob the grave of its victims. I have seen it serve as the medium by which people staged a comeback after having been defeated in a hundred different ways. And I have seen it provide my own son with a normal, happy, successful life, despite nature's having sent him into the world without ears. How can you harness and use the power of desire? The first part of the answer is in the technique at the beginning of this chapter. You will learn more about it in the next and subsequent chapters of this book. Through some strange and powerful principle, nature wraps up in the impulse of strong desire that something that recognizes no such word as impossible and accepts no such reality as failure. There are no limitations to the mind except those we acknowledge. Chapter 4 faith in your ability visualization of and belief in attainment of desire the second step toward riches faith is the head chemist of the mind when faith is blended with thought the subconscious mind instantly picks up the vibration the subconscious then translates it and transmits it to infinite intelligence the emotions of faith, love, and sex are the most powerful of all the major positive emotions. When the three are blended, they have the effect of coloring thought in such a way that it instantly reaches the subconscious mind. There, it is changed into a form that induces a response from infinite intelligence. Editor's Comments In the preceding paragraph, Napoleon Hill uses two terms, faith and infinite intelligence, both of which may convey to the reader a religious connotation that Hill did not intend. The following will define the meaning of the words as Hill uses them in the following chapter. In modern usage, the word faith has become almost interchangeable with religious belief, which is not the way Hill uses the word. Faith, as it is used here, means having confidence, trust, and an absolute, unwavering belief that you can do something. And in order for you to have faith in yourself as Hill means it, it has to be true on a subconscious level. If you have a nagging doubt in the back of your mind, or if you are just going through the motions of pretending you believe, it won't work because your subconscious will know your doubts. Unless you have absolute, total confidence, unless you are convinced without question, then you don't have faith. Hill uses the term infinite intelligence to identify that part of the human mind and thinking process that produces hunches, flashes of insight, and leaps of logic. Hill's concept has similarities to what psychologist Carl Jung called the collective unconscious, and on another level, it is very close to what contemporary psychologists refer to as working in the flow state, or being in the zone, Infinite intelligence is discussed in greater depth in later chapters. Hill also uses another term, the subconscious mind, that should be commented on before the reader proceeds with this chapter. Although there are differing schools of thought, in general modern psychology developed from the pioneering work of Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung, each believed that the human mind operates on both a conscious and an unconscious level but they differed on the role the subconscious plays and the way it influences attitude and action. Through his own research and studies, Napoleon Hill developed a theory of the conscious and subconscious that is closest to the Jungian view. The following briefly describes the basis of Hill's view. The Conscious Mind Your conscious mind receives information through the five senses of sight, smell, taste, hearing, and touch. Your conscious mind keeps track of what you need for thinking and operating, and it filters out what you don't need. Your conscious mind, and what your memory retains, is the intelligence with which you normally think, reason, and plan. The Subconscious Mind Your subconscious has access to all the same information your conscious mind receives, but it doesn't reason the way your conscious mind does. It takes everything literally. It doesn't make value judgments, it does not filter, and it does not forget. You cannot command your conscious mind to reach out and dip into your subconscious mind. However, under certain circumstances, all those forgotten facts and ideas that are always there in your subconscious can, if they are firmly rooted, influence your conscious attitudes and actions. This is the end of the editor's comments. How to Develop Faith The following statement is very important in understanding the importance of autosuggestion in the transmutation of desire into its physical or monetary equivalent, namely, faith is a state of mind that may be induced or created by affirmation or repeated instructions to the subconscious mind through the principle of autosuggestion. The repetition of affirmations is like giving orders to your subconscious mind, and it is the only known method of voluntary development of the emotion of faith, absolute belief that you can do something. As an illustration, consider why you are reading this book. You want to acquire the ability to transmute the intangible thought impulse of desire into its physical counterpart, money. By following the instructions laid down in the later chapters on auto-suggestion and the subconscious mind, you will learn techniques to convince your subconscious mind that you believe you will receive that for which you ask. Your subconscious will act upon that belief and pass it back to you in the form of faith, followed by definite plans for procuring that which you desire. Faith in yourself and your abilities is a state of mind that you will be able to develop at will after you have mastered the 13 principles in this book. This is true because faith is a state of mind that will develop naturally within you when you use and apply these principles. The emotions, or the feeling portion of thoughts, are what give your thoughts vitality, life, and action. The emotions of faith, love, and sex, when mixed with any thought impulse, give it even greater action. All thoughts that have been emotionalized, given feeling, and mixed with faith, absolute belief in your ability, begin immediately to translate themselves into their physical equivalent or counterpart. However, this is not only true of thought impulses that have been mixed with faith, but it is true with any emotion, including negative emotions. What this means is that the subconscious mind will translate into its physical equivalent a thought impulse of a negative or destructive nature just as readily as it will act upon thought impulses of a positive or constructive nature. The following statement made by a noted criminologist illustrates the point. When men first come into contact with crime, they abhor it. If they remain in contact with crime for a time, they become accustomed to it and endure it. If they remain in contact with it long enough, they finally embrace it and become influenced by it. This is the equivalent of saying that a negative impulse of thought that is repeatedly passed on to the subconscious mind often enough is finally accepted and acted upon by the subconscious mind. The subconscious then proceeds to translate that impulse into its physical equivalent by the most practical procedure available. This also accounts for the strange phenomenon that so many millions of people experience referred to as bad luck. There are millions of people who believe themselves doomed to poverty and failure because of some strange force they call bad luck, over which they believe they have no control. But the truth is that they are the creators of their own misfortunes because this negative belief in bad luck is picked up by the subconscious mind and translated into its physical equivalent. Your belief or faith is the element that will determine the action of your subconscious mind. Once again, let me stress that you will benefit by passing on to your subconscious mind any desire that you wish translated into its physical or monetary equivalent in a state of expectancy or belief that the transmutation will actually take place the subconscious mind will transmute into its physical equivalent, by the most direct and practical way available, any order that is given to it in a state of belief or faith that the order will be carried out. At this point, it should also be noted that because of the way that the subconscious operates, there is nothing to stop you from deceiving your subconscious mind when giving it instructions through auto-suggestion. That is what I did when I deceived my son's subconscious mind. To make this deception more realistic, when you call upon your subconscious mind, you must conduct yourself just as you would if you were already in possession of the material thing that you are demanding. Editor's Comments It is an axiom of contemporary motivation theory that the subconscious mind cannot distinguish between what is real and what is vividly imagined. One of the most frequently cited studies supporting this concept was done with a group of basketball players. The players were divided into three teams, and the players on each team were tested on their ability to make free throws. The teams were then separated for a period of time, and each team was given instructions which they were told would improve their abilities. One team was instructed to practice making baskets on a daily basis. The second team was instructed not to practice during the period, and not to even think about basketball. The third team was also instructed not to practice during the period, but instead the members were told to spend their daily practice time visualizing in detail the process of making baskets. At the end of the experiment, the teams were again tested. The team that rested showed a decrease in ability. The team that practiced showed a marked increase in ability, and the team that didn't practice But visualized making baskets showed an increase in ability almost equal to those who had practiced daily. As Hill says, you can deceive your subconscious through auto-suggestion. If you convincingly plant an idea in your subconscious, your subconscious will accept and work with the idea as though it were a fact. But the key word is convincingly. If you try to send a message to your subconscious, but in the back of your mind you have a nagging doubt whether it will work, your subconscious will pick that up also. You will have sent mixed messages that cancel each other out. That is why Hill stresses the importance of doing it with faith. Your subconscious will not judge if it is true or false, positive or negative, but it does respond to the power of the input, how emotionalized the thought is. This is the end of the editor's comment. It is essential for you to encourage the positive emotions as the dominating forces of your mind. But faith in yourself doesn't come from merely reading instructions. Now that you understand the theory, you must begin to apply it. By experimenting and practicing, you will develop your ability to mix faith with any order you give to your subconscious. When you have faith in your ability, then you can give your subconscious mind instructions which it will accept and act upon immediately. When your mind is dominated by positive emotions, it will encourage the state of mind known as faith. Faith in yourself is a state of mind that you can create by auto-suggestion. All through the ages, religious leaders have admonished people to have faith. They say to have faith in this, that, and the other dogma or creed, but they have failed to tell people how, to have faith. They have not stated that faith is a state of mind that may be induced by self-suggestion. In language that anyone can understand, this book explains the principle through which faith in your ability to accomplish a goal may be developed where it does not already exist. Before we begin, you should be reminded again that faith is the eternal elixir that gives life, power, and action to the impulse of thought. Faith is the starting point of all accumulation of riches. Faith is the basis of all miracles and of all mysteries that cannot be analyzed by the rules of science. Faith is the only known antidote for failure. Faith is the element that, when mixed with desire, gives you direct communication with infinite intelligence. Faith is the element that transforms the ordinary vibration of thought created by the human mind, into the spiritual equivalent. Faith is the only way the force of infinite intelligence can be harnessed and used. The Magic of Self-Suggestion It is a fact that you will come to believe whatever you repeat to yourself, whether the statement is true or false. If you repeat a lie over and over, you will eventually accept that lie as truth moreover you will believe it to be the truth. You are what you are because of the dominating thoughts that you permit to occupy your mind. Thoughts that you deliberately place in your own mind and encourage with sympathy and with which you mix any one or more of the emotions constitute the motivating forces that direct and control your every movement, act, and deed. The following sentence is a very significant statement of truth. Thoughts that are mixed with any of the feelings of emotions become like a magnetic force, which attracts other similar or related thoughts. A thought that is magnetized with one of the emotions may be compared to a seed. When it is planted in fertile soil, it germinates, grows, and multiplies itself over and over again. What was originally one small seed becomes countless millions of seeds of the same kind. The human mind is constantly attracting vibrations that are in sync with whatever dominates the mind. Any thought, idea, plan, or purpose that you hold in your mind attracts a host of its relatives. Add these relatives to its own force, and it grows until it becomes the prime motivator of the person in whose mind it has been housed. Now, let us go back to the starting point. How can the original seed of an idea, plan, or purpose be planted in the mind? The answer? Any idea, plan, or purpose may be placed in the mind through repetition of thought. This is why you are asked to write out a statement of your major purpose or definite chief aim. Commit it to memory and repeat it out loud day after day until these vibrations of sound have reached your subconscious mind. You are what you are because of the dominating thoughts that you permit to occupy your mind. If you choose to, You can throw off any bad influences from your past and build your own life the way you want it to be. For instance, by taking inventory of your mental assets and liabilities, you might discover that your greatest weakness is lack of self-confidence. This can be overcome and translated into courage through the principle of auto-suggestion. You can do this by writing out a set of simply stated positive thought impulses, memorizing them, and repeating them until they become a part of the working equipment of your subconscious mind. The following is an example for someone whose definite purpose is to overcome a lack of self-confidence. Self-confidence formula. 1. I know that I have the ability to achieve the object of my definite purpose in life. Therefore, I demand of myself persistent, continuous action toward its attainment, and I here and now promise to render such action. 2. I realize the dominating thoughts of my mind will eventually reproduce themselves in outward physical action and gradually transform themselves into physical reality. Therefore, I will concentrate my thoughts for 30 minutes each day, visualizing the person I intend to become. In this way, I will create in my mind a clear mental picture. 3. 3. I know, through the principle of auto-suggestion, that any desire I persistently hold in my mind will eventually find some practical means of attaining my objective. Therefore, I will devote ten minutes daily to demanding of myself the development of self-confidence. 4. I have clearly written down a description of my definite chief aim in life, and I will never stop trying until I have developed sufficient self-confidence for its attainment. 5. I fully realize that no wealth or position can last unless it is built upon truth and justice. Therefore, I will engage in no transaction that does not benefit all whom it affects. I will succeed by attracting to myself the forces I wish to use and the cooperation of others. I will persuade others to help me, because of my willingness to help others. I will eliminate hatred, envy, jealousy, selfishness, and cynicism by developing love for all humanity, because I know that a negative attitude toward others can never bring me success. I will cause others to believe in me, because I will believe in them and in myself. I will sign my name to this formula, commit it to memory, and repeat it aloud once a day, with full faith that it will gradually influence my thoughts and actions so that I will become a self-reliant and successful person. Behind this formula is a law of nature that psychologists call autosuggestion or self-suggestion. It is a proven technique that will work for your success if it is used constructively. On the other hand, if used destructively, it will destroy just as readily. In this statement may be found a very significant truth. Namely, that those who go down in defeat and end their lives in poverty, misery, and distress do so because of negative application of the principle of autosuggestion. All impulses of thought have a tendency to clothe themselves in their physical equivalent. THE DISASTER OF NEGATIVE THINKING The subconscious mind makes no distinction between constructive and destructive thought impulses. It works with the material we feed it through our thought impulses. The subconscious mind will translate into reality a thought driven by fear just as readily as it will translate into reality a thought driven by courage or faith. Just as electricity will turn the wheels of industry and render useful service if used constructively, it will snuff out life if wrongly used. So too will the law of autosuggestion lead you to peace and prosperity or down into the valley of misery, failure, and death. It depends on your degree of understanding and application of it. If you fill your mind with fear or doubt, and if you do not believe in your ability to connect with and use the forces of infinite intelligence, then you will not be able to use those forces. The law of autosuggestion will take your lack of belief and use that doubt as a pattern by which your subconscious mind will translate it into its physical equivalent. Editor's Comments When you have faith in your ability to accomplish what you want, it not only firmly plants ideas in your subconscious, but it then works to reinforce itself. When you have faith in your abilities, part of what you must have faith in is that it is possible to tap into infinite intelligence. And because you have faith that it will work, your conscious mind won't be resistant. When your conscious doesn't resist, your subconscious mind can send creative ideas to your conscious mind more easily. Then, the more you see the power working in your life, the easier it is for you to act on faith the next time. Will it work for you? You will never know unless you relax your resistance and just have faith that it will. This is the end of the editor's comment. Like the wind that carries one ship east and another west, the law of autosuggestion will lift you up or pull you down according to the way you set your sails of thought. The law of autosuggestion, through which any person may rise to altitudes of achievement that stagger the imagination, is well described in the following verse. Observe the words that have been emphasized, and you will catch the deep meaning that the poet had in mind. If you think you are beaten, you are. If you think you dare not, you don't. If you like to win, but you think you can't, it is almost certain you won't. If you think you will lose, you are lost. For out in the world we find, success begins with a fellow's will. It's all in the state of mind. If you think you are outclassed, you are. You've got to think high to rise. You've got to be sure of yourself before you can ever win a prize.